Hey everyone, before we get started today, I want to mention that this episode, Google vs. Oracle Part 1, was recorded prior to the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We at The Podvocate share in the legal community's sorrow at her passing. She was a historic jurist whose commitment to social justice and gender equality was unparalleled. May her memory be a blessing. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com and check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Olivia and I are here to discuss the facts of the Google versus Oracle case before we jump into our interview. The two issues in the Google versus Oracle case are, are APIs copyrightable material and does using APIs fall under the right of fair use? So first things first, let's get into what an API is. An API stands for Application Programming Interface. It's a piece of software that acts as an intermediary between multiple pieces of software. For example, when you go to a restaurant, you don't talk directly to the cooks, you talk to the waiters, and they talk to the cooks, and they bring your food out, and then you have food. An API works very similarly. It acts as the interface between one application and another application. So for a more technical example, when you are on Instagram and you swipe over to see the Instagram camera, it doesn't really look like your iPhone camera or your Android camera. It's got its own special little overlay on the camera. This is because Instagram's application uses the cameras on your phone's API to work directly with the camera. So it's kind of like a little handshake between the two systems. Now, Java is a programming language and platform developed by the company Sun Microsystems, which later got absorbed into Oracle. Google used structures that were similar to Java APIs when they developed the Android operating system. They wrote their own version of Java, but in order to allow developers to easily create applications for Android, their implementation used the same names, organizational structure, and functionality as the original Java APIs. What's really cool about this particular case is that it's been a decade-long battle between Oracle and Google. The battle of Oracle and Google began a decade ago, when Oracle sued Google over the first issue that Leanne mentioned, which is, are APIs copyrightable? Google won in district court, but then Oracle won at the appellate level. The appellate court decided that APIs are copyrightable, but that Google could have a theory for fair use. However, the Supreme Court denied cert on this issue. So then Google takes it back down to the district court, where they again win. Google did, in fact, use the APIs in a fair way. Back on appeal, Oracle won. So here we are again, where Google has submitted a cert to the Supreme Court, and this time the Supreme Court said they would take it. So now, with a little bit of a name change, we're still dealing with Two issues. Are APIs copyrightable? And 
do the use of the APIs fall under fair use? Oracle is suing Google for approximately $8 billion in damages, and Google has two arguments here. They're going to argue once again that the APIs are not copyrightable. And because they're in the Supreme Court, they're able to bring that argument again. But they're also going to argue their fair use claim. And according to the Uright Copy Office, fair use is a legal doctrine that promotes freedom of expression by permitting the unlicensed use of copyrightable protected works in certain circumstances. And these types of use come, you know, things like criticism, comments, news reporting, teaching, scholarship. All these examples of activities may qualify as fair use. But the question is, is the way that Google used Oracle's APIs consistent with what we understand to be fair use? Oracle is claiming that companies will be dissuaded from investing in the development of technology if other companies are allowed to copy it. And so while the Supreme Court has taken up this cert, we have an exciting decision before us. That was a really great summary of the Google versus Oracle case, and I'm super excited to see how this case is going to turn out. There have been a lot of briefs filed on behalf of Google and on behalf of Oracle, and it's going to be really interesting to see how the oral argument goes on October 7th. And from here, we'll move on to our interview. All right, so today, Olivia and I are here with Professor Matthew Sag. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself so we all know who we're talking to? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me here. Uh, I'm a professor here at Loyola. I guess I've been teaching here for about 10 years or so. And most of my expertise is in copyright law. I've worked in copyright as a lawyer in London during the dot-com boom, which now feels like ancient history. Um, and then in Silicon Valley until about 2004, when I moved to Chicago and became a law professor. That sounds like a really interesting life to lead, especially working during the dot-com boom and then working in Silicon Valley for as many years and um, dealing with all of the tech giants out there. So there are two issues today uh, with regard to Google versus Oracle, and they are whether APIs are copyrightable material and whether using APIs, if they are copyrightable material, falls under the doctrine of fair use. So first things first, what are your impressions of the case? What do you think about it? Um, I think it's an important case. It's a case that is very difficult to predict. Um, I think that the Supreme Court has almost no chance of understanding the technology that's involved, and that gives me some trepidation. Um, I think that the just the sort of the basic equities of the case are really hard to call. Like it's not a case where you should feel overwhelming passion or sympathy either for Oracle, who basically just bought the husk of Sun Microsystems, uh, or Google, who you know, used uh, someone else's software as 
a springboard to developing their own product. Um, there's no, there's no little guy, there's no underdog here. Um, but you know, we don't just have court cases to sort out the rights of the parties. We have court cases to set the rules for everyone going forward. And you know, I think the case has a lot of important implications. So I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will say something sensible, uh, but I'm honestly, I'm incredibly worried. Do you think it's interesting that so many tech companies, like even rivals of Google, are writing briefs in support of them in this case? Like almost a lot of the tech world has coalesced behind this case. Absolutely. It's interesting. It's not surprising. Um, and you have to... You have to understand what the Federal Circuit did here came as an enormous shock to the software industry. Software has been part of the Copyright Act since 1980. And in the 1980s, there were a few cases where, you know, quite frankly, the courts were a bit all over the place. But really, since the 1990s, the, everyone has understood that you can't copy all of someone's software and say, oh, look, I'm using it functionally, therefore that's okay. And that's clearly not okay. Um, but it has been well understood and well accepted that you can copy the sort of the minimum parts of the software that you need for interoperability as long as you do a sort of clean implementation of everything else. And so when I was in Silicon Valley, the standard advice we would give is if you wanted to make a product that was like someone else's product, is you would have one team of engineers look at the original product, boil it down to a set of specifications, and then you'd give those specs to another team of engineers who had not seen the original code, and you would tell them to write it in a different language. Right? And that's clean room implementation would end up with a product that had a lot of the same function, a lot of the same basic organization, and you know, because it's solving the same problem, it's using the same ideas, none of which are copyrightable, but is a clean implementation. That's essentially what Google did here. And when the Federal Circuit told them they couldn't do it, that was a I think a profound shock to the software industry. So if you look at the brief from Microsoft, for example, Microsoft has no particular love for Google, but Microsoft realizes that it could very well be in the same position as Google with respect to some other product, and that interoperability is really what makes the world go round in Silicon Valley. It sounds like what you're saying is what Google is doing is is standard practice, that there has to be some type of similarity that allows for interoperability. So then what is Oracle's strongest argument against Google? And what makes this case so potentially difficult to predict if that's kind of been the standard practice, as you've mentioned? Uh, good questions. The first thing I would say is what Google has done is very similar to what a thousand other companies have done in a thousand other situations, but the scale 
upon which they've done it is quite different. So there are lots of references in the briefs and in the decisions to just how many lines of code Google copied. And, and I think it's in the tens of thousands. And for some people, just the idea that you can literally copy 10,000 lines of code and then say, oh, no, no, but I'm, I, I can do that because it's functional and I really need it. That doesn't sit very well. So it's the sort of the scale and audacity of what Google is. It shouldn't make the legal arguments different, but it's certainly, you know, it's a big case um, and it's going to be pretty important. But to put that scale in context, you know, I think the Sun original Java library, which is the, is the huge package of software that makes Java run, that has 2.8 million lines of code. And so Google's argument is not really that different to someone who copies the APIs on a video game so that they can create their own video game to plug into like an old Sega console or something like that. It's just that Google didn't just do it for one video game, it did it at this enormous scale. And so I think in terms of just you know, the optics of the case, that's a point that goes very much in Oracle's favor, just the scale and audacity of what Google has done. So this is a pretty terrible legal argument, but it's a, I think it explains some of the traction that Oracle got at the Federal Circuit. But you asked a very good question, you know, what, is, what is Oracle's best argument? I think Oracle's best argument is that this consensus of the software industry never made any sense. Just because people believed this to be true and wished that it were true, it doesn't actually mean that it is true. And so Oracle's argument is basically, forget what Silicon Valley thinks, forget what everyone has assumed for the past three decades. When you actually think about how the Copyright Act works, the Copyright Act says that computer programs are copyrightable subject matter. And if that is going to mean anything, then the exclusions in Section 102B, which are basically functionality exclusions, then they can't be applied to software. And so I would say that's Oracle's best argument. It's also kind of their worst argument because they're asking the court to say, well, this part of the Copyright Act, Section 102B, you should just ignore it because it doesn't make sense in the context of software. I think this is a puzzle that the Supreme Court has never really tried to address. And it's not an easy one to address. I've been teaching copyright for a long time. I really struggle to explain to my students how software is almost entirely functional and certainly the reasons we value software are for its functionality. The things that make good software good are all about its functionality, not its expression. Um, and yet the Copyright Act seems to say, well, no, we don't, you know, even if we protect a copyrightable work, that copyright does not extend to facts and ideas or systems or methods of operation and basically excludes protection of functionality. That's a very hard circle to square. And Oracle would like 
the courts to square that circle by just saying section 102b doesn't mean what it says and we shouldn't apply it to software which is basically the view the federal circuit took google would like the court to square that circle by saying there's a middle ground that says well of course copyright protects you from you know really substantial copying but it doesn't protect you from copying of just the functional elements that are necessary for interoperability. Now, I think that is a really sensible middle ground. There are great policy reasons for it. There's nothing in the Act that talks about what's necessary for interoperability. Arguably, software is functional, even if it's not necessary for interoperability. But, you know, I think Congress kind of knowingly set up this contradiction when it included software as part of copyright. And if you go back and look at the committee reports that went into this, it seems fairly clear that this is how they expected it to be resolved. They expected it to be resolved in favor of, we'll allow interoperability, but still protect, you know, otherwise protect things that aren't broadly functional. Well, that's good that maybe the comments will set some light. You mentioned that the Supreme Court doesn't have much experience with this. I don't know if we have any justices who have IP or software backgrounds. And in that case, I I imagine that they might be pretty deferential to what they assume Congress, Congress's intentions were, and maybe even the industry standard of practice. But that would definitely be not in favor of Oracle. Yeah, I think that might be right. I think Oracle has an argument that will play well with at least some parts of the court. And that argument is essentially copyright is meant to provide incentives. And you know, we spent a lot of money to create Java and you're not going to give us much of an incentive if we don't get to control who uses Java in a commercial context. Now, I think that is that is a good argument, but the problem is, well, you have to identify what are the limiting principles. Maybe J.K. Rowling would write more Harry Potter books if no one who read them was allowed to criticize them. Right? You can't you can't say, well, give me this additional right, and that gives me even more incentive. It's like, yeah, okay, maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't, but that's not enough. So I think, I think that the justices will take note of all of the amicus briefs that are lined up on Google's side. Um, there is now a, kind of a cottage industry of generating amicus briefs. So there are definitely some amicus briefs on the other side. If you just add up the number of law professors, the law professors are clearly stacked in favor of Google on this question. Um, and that's not because these people love Google. Some of these people really don't care for Google at all in other contexts, but they don't like what the Federal Circuit has done. Let's imagine that the court rules in Oracle's favor, which would be a, a pretty big deal, I'm gathering from what you said thus far. How do you imagine that would change the everyday life in Silicon Valley or for, you know, software developers overall? 
Um, yeah, I actually think it's even worse than that. I think even if the court rules in Google's favor, the damage has been done. I think that people no longer feel like they can take the risk in relying on an interoperable system. Yeah, I think in based on some brief conversations that I have had with people in Silicon Valley, no one would take the risk of trying to do what Google did again. Uh, certainly not unless we get a very clear statement from the Supreme Court. So the only interoperability that people feel they can rely on now is, is if they actually get a license or if it's part of an open source software package. And you know, whether you realize it or not, you know, a lot of the software that runs your everyday life has open source software under the hood. So the software that drives web servers is all open source software. Um, I use a Mac. It's a proprietary system, but it's largely built on the back of open source software. Because, quite frankly, you know, it seems like you can't trust a company like Oracle not to uh, not to assert its its rights to basically control the, the Java language. The you know, the decisions already had a substantial effect. If Google loses, uh, then you know I think that will be confirmed. I think it would be more difficult and more expensive to make interoperable software in the future, which means that you won't see as much of the sort of creativity and diversity of some people building on other people's platforms, unless those platforms are open source. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, that's one big downside. You know, I think for me, the real question is, is can the Supreme Court un undo that damage? And I guess we have to wait and see. Yeah, and I think you're already seeing the downstream effects of that because Apple and Google are moving away from some of the stuff that they've built on uh, prior software. Google is, uh, I think, transitioning Android to its own proprietary language and moving it off the backs of what is at issue in this lawsuit. So. I think you're already seeing these big companies transition away from using other people's tools, so to speak. So I'm not sure, like you said, it, the damage might have already been done in this case. And you have these big um, organizations who are able to invest the time and the money to produce their own language and then work off of that. And that leaves a lot of people kind of in the dust almost with having to use the like open source software, like you said. Is there anything surprising about this case that the average onlooker would not think of or be aware of? Just something more granular in this case? I don't know if it's more granular, but I think that people would be really surprised about the timeline. The I'm trying to recall exactly, I'm pretty sure that the initial lawsuit was filed in 2010. So here we have a case filed in 2010. It's now the back end of 2020 and we're still waiting to hear an argument at the Supreme Court. It's entirely possible the Supreme Court will reverse and remand. 
in which case this saga is not yet over. There are a lot of complex reasons as to why the case took that long, but I think the most surprising thing, the thing that really surprised me more than anything, was in in 2014, the district court had already ruled that the APIs that Oracle said were infringed couldn't actually sustain a charge of copyright infringement and that therefore there was no case to answer. The Federal Circuit heard the appeal on that point and it said, no, district court, you're wrong. We think that those APIs are copyrightable. And that was the opinion that overturned the Silicon Valley understanding of how copyright law worked vis-a-vis software. Oracle asked the court to basically then and there declare it the victor. Oracle said, well, Google really doesn't have any other argument it can make. It's clearly, if it's copyrightable, it's clearly infringed. And as a matter of law, Google's fair use argument just does not stack up. Given what the Federal Circuit held in 2018, which was, as a matter of law, Google's fair use argument does not stack up, it's really shocking that in 2014, they remanded the case back to the district court with instructions to basically turn the fair use issue over to a jury. Like, the Federal Circuit wasted everyone's time. Like, they wasted the jury's time, they wasted the trial judge's time, they wasted law professors' time, but no one cares about that. I care about your time. Oh, thank you. <laughs> it just, like, I really strongly disagree with their ruling on the API issue. But I understood, right? I think it's not correct. I think it's unwise. But it's not ridiculous. I understand it. It probably is not even the end of the world. Uh, And I would have understood if they had just then said, oh, and we just, this can never be fair use. But to throw it back to the jury and then say, oh, no, jury, just kidding. We were never really, you only get to decide if you agree with us. It's not fair use. I just thought it was really insulting. Yeah, the issue with essentially thumbing their nose at the jury was one of the most interesting and dramatic points of reading about this case. So we've talked a lot about fair use and on its face, you know, it seems just like that, fair use. But what is fair use in just a general context and a um, copyright context? We went over the definition a little bit that it's a, a legal doctrine that promotes freedom of expression. But what does it mean in this context specifically? Yeah, so the fair use doctrine in copyright law is a mechanism that allows the courts to find that some action that technically looks like infringement is not infringing. And if you're looking for a sort of one single reason that can explain as many of the cases as possible, I would say it's that it's not infringing because it doesn't negatively impact on 
the copyright owner's interest in communicating their original expression to the public. So if you think about a parody, for example, parody clearly reuses elements of the original, but it uses them in a really different context and in a context that necessarily comments back and reflects on the original. And so it's true, it's still using some parts of the original and necessarily some recognizable parts, but it's not potentially substituting for the original. If you've taken a copyright course, you've looked at the case of uh, Campbell versus Acalf Rose, which is when the rap group Two Live Crew did their own version of Roy Orbison's Pretty Woman. Now, Pretty Woman is a terrible song. Two Live Crew's version is an awesome parody. Other people may disagree with that musical assessment, but no one in their right mind thinks that there is any overlap in the audience for those two songs. Not just because they're in different genres with different market segments, but because the second song basically tears apart the original and makes it impossible to listen to the original because you realize how terrible it is. So it's actually a really insightful parody in my view. But the, the fair use issue here is actually really difficult because if you think of fair use as allowing copying when it doesn't interfere in the author's interest in communicating their original expression, like, well, how do we apply that to software when software is functional rather than expressive? Like, it's not so easy. I think if you look at the Google's fair use argument, basically the same as its API argument. Google says, look, yeah, we copied a substantial amount if you just add it up. But if you look at it as a proportion of, look at all the work we did to create this entirely new software platform, all we did was we copied the code that you would need so developers who are used to writing in Java know how to call on these methods. And the methods actually do things. The methods are what Google wrote. So it wrote all the doing part, but it needed to use the same declarations as Java so that software developers, when they wanted the program to do something, they could just use the sort of the form and grammar and syntax that they were used to. So Google's argument is, look, we made this whole new thing, we put in a huge amount of work, and we really copied very little. Uh, Oracle's argument on fair use is, well, hang on, you used our declarations for exactly the same purpose that we used them. So if we focus narrowly on the declarations, you didn't, you didn't parody them or criticize them or comment on them, like, or you know, use them to report the news or educate the public about them. You used them for the exact same reason that we wrote them. You used them in the exact same way that we used them. And you did it in a way that arguably impacted the market for our software package. You made it more difficult for us to license Java to people because you know, Android was then a competing option. Now, 
personally, I think the jury would have been entitled to find for Google or for Oracle on the fair use question. I think that it's you know, one of the reasons why we have juries is to get them to answer questions for which they're you know, it's just reasonable people could disagree. Uh, I think this is one of those questions. I think that most of Google's strong fair use arguments are actually a lot like their, look, these APIs just you know, copying them doesn't infringe in the first place argument. But, you know, I think it was clearly enough for the jury to decide that because the use was confined to interoperability and because that was so important, uh, there was enough for the jury to find fair use. I think that answer's ended a long way from where the question started, but that's what you get. No, it was really interesting. Thank you. Going to the oral argument, which is set for October 7th, which got pushed back, I believe, from March, is there anything that we should be keeping an eye out for or anything that we could expect? Um, should we expect the um, attorneys to get really kind of in-depth with the software, or are we expecting them to give the Supreme Court a more broad overview? And are there any types of arguments that we might expect them to employ? Yeah, I think the thing you should watch out for is the battle of analogies. Oracle likes to analogize the declarations to topic sentences for each chapter in a Honestly, it's kind of a stupid analogy, but it worked really well with the Federal Circuit. And under that analogy, you know, Oracle made the case that if you gave someone the topic sentence to every chapter of Harry Potter, that in a way retells the story. And so, you know, that's enough to infringe our copyright. I think uh, Google's argument is that no, 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 no. These aren't like topic sentences in a novel. These are like labels on files in a filing cabinet. And the, the structure and the hierarchy that is embodied in the declarations, that is like, oh, telling you like which filing cabinet and which room. And then the actual, all the fine-grained detail on the declaration is telling you which individual file folder, but you know, once you get to the file folder and open it up, you will just find stuff that Google has written, right? So Google, you know, Google's analogy stresses the interoperability function and the fact that there's a lot that Google added. Oracle's analogy stresses the, there is something of substance, something created in declarations. I don't love either of these analogies. Uh, software people I talk to kind of roll their eyes and they're like, oh, that's stupid. That's not really how software works. And yeah, no, I understand that. But you're talking to nine justices who, whatever they are expert in, it is not technology. And if you had any doubt of that, uh, you should listen to the Oral arguments that the Supreme Court held by telephone conference last year. Not last year, just earlier this year. You know, no disrespect to the justices. They're expert in many, many things, but technology is not one of them. So 
the advocates will be trying to explain something very subtle and complicated to basically a room full of octogenarians, and they're going to try and do it in using a set of analogies. Um, but yeah, you know, the justices are also smart people, so you can expect them to be knocking down those analogies or trying to fight with them to some extent. I have to ask Professor Sag, is there an analogy that you would use if you were going in front of the Supreme Court that that feels more in alignment with maybe what a software developer might agree with? Um, it's hard. Uh, I think, I, I mean, if I was arguing the case for Google, I would I'd probably go with the filing cabinet analogy, even though it's a little bit cringeworthy. The other analogy I would give is to say, uh, no, Your Honor, this is like this is like a book of five hundred Spanish verbs, and the no one owns the copyright in the Spanish language, and Oracle is not asserting a copyright in Java because of the way the language works. There are certain sort of structures and syntaxes that you have to use, and Google would be saying. That's, that's all we're using, but we're still writing our own poetry. We're just working within the constraints of the language because we wanted to build a platform that would be easy for people who know Java or people who speak Spanish to understand. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I love that analogy either. But, you know, sometimes it's easier to be a law professor than to be a Supreme Court advocate. <laughs> that analogy makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm someone who doesn't have a lot of uh, tech IP background. And with that, I wanted to ask my next question was, so if these programs don't have this basic availability for interoperability, like if that, if we go in that direction, what am I going to see on Instagram or what is it going to be like when I'm trying to open, you know, for example, Microsoft Word on a Mac computer? Are there any consequences on the ground for folks who aren't in the software world that we'll see as a result of this dispute? Yeah. So that's a hard question because most of the consequences will be in things that you don't see. Like you're not going to see anything you currently use disappear, um, I guess. Google is going to have to work overtime to rewrite huge chunks of the Android operating system. But again, they'll probably be working pretty hard to make sure that you, the consumer, don't notice that. The thing about innovation is, like, if we knew what the next important innovation was, someone would have invented it already. And this is kind of the structural imbalance of an argument like this. Oracle is there with its thousands of lawyers in their $9,000 suits saying, look at all the money we, i.e. Sun, invested in making this. And, you know, you need to protect our investment. There's no one with a time machine from the future saying, no, 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 look at, look at what you don't get if Oracle wins. We'll never actually know, but we do have a general sense of what's a good climate for innovation. And so let me 
see if I can boil it down to something pretty basic. All right, so let's say let's say you drop your your phone and you smash the screen. Okay. Okay. And you know you can go to Apple and you can get like the original Apple screen and chipset that goes with that, and that's like three hundred dollars. That's what it's costing a new phone. Maybe some third party could come along and say, "Oh, we're going to make our own screen. It's going to be cheaper." There are a few little bits and pieces of software we need to copy to make sure that our new screen will plug into your old iPhone, right? They're relying on the same interoperability argument that Google's relying on. And so potentially that won't exist. Um, you know, another context that actually the Supreme Court has had cases on uh, is on toner cartridge for your printer. The people who make printers like to sell cheap printers and expensive toner. And they try and lock you in by putting a little computer program in both those devices. But putting a computer program in both those devices that need to talk to each other. Well, existing case law says that if you need to reuse the APIs so that your replacement toner cartridge can talk to the old computer, then that's okay. So I guess one consequence is maybe your options for interoperable parts and replacement parts could be dramatically reduced. Um, yeah, but I think the, the bigger issue is all of the innovation and developments that we won't see, and we'll never even know we lost them. Right, yeah. Kind of reminds me of what people say about... Um you know, grave sites in general, like all those lost ideas that we'll never have uh, because we've already have buried them in, in, in this case, maybe. Who knows? Who knows? The printer example reminded me of a situation I read about a few years ago where uh, you have um, computer scientists helping farmers hack their um, John Deere and other branded um, farming equipment because they're locked behind um, official John Deere technicians, so to speak. So they're helping them hack it so they can repair it themselves. And I think that also falls under right to repair. It's a little bit away from this, but that's what that reminded me of was that right to access and repair your own machine as opposed to using proprietary yeah, yeah, stuff. It's, it's very closely related. I mean, you might want the right to repair or you might want the right to have someone else repair for you. Certainly in that context, the ability to produce interoperable software is really going to be key. Just a final question. Right now, what do you think the likely outcome of the case is? I know earlier you talked about, you know, it's really hard to predict, but is it is it a coin flip? You know, is it really going to, are there strong arguments for either side or does one side have just a little bit of an edge over it? I honestly don't know. And I will, after our argument, probably be able to give you a prediction but at the moment yeah i'm just not sure and you know, honestly i would say like the better you know a case and the more strongly you feel about how it should come out the worse you are able to actually predict what's going to go on because all you're thinking is kind of jaded by your own uh, your own biases uh, i'm very confident justice Breyer is going to side with google i would be really surprised 
if Thomas didn't go with Oracle. Alito probably goes with Oracle. Yeah, no, even that I'm not sure about. Justice Ginsburg is one to watch. Very liberal on most issues, very conservative on copyright issues. But yeah, even on this one, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think, I mean, my best guess is Oracle probably wins all of the Republican justices and Ginsburg and Kagan. But what I'm hoping is that Justice Gorsuch actually joins Justice Breyer and brings along Alito. Sotomayor, I think, is definitely persuadable. Kagan is persuadable. Um, and I think if if it's shaping up for a majority, Roberts might join as well. It's a it's partly a tough one to predict because honestly, I just don't think the justices really care that much. Like it's not it probably doesn't break the top ten of things they think are incredibly important, uh, and you can tell that because they you know when they had to hold it over for argument, they scheduled a bunch of cases for oral argument by telephone last term and this wasn't one of them. Just said, oh yeah, that can wait till next year. It's been since 2010, what's another year? Yeah. So I don't I don't know what the Supreme Court is, is going to do. Uh, I think another possibility is that the Supreme Court majority will say, hmm, yeah, this API issue is kind of interesting and kind of hard. We're not going to resolve it. We're just going to resolve the fair use issue. Federal Circuit was wrong to take that away from the jury, and the jury verdict in favour of fair use should stand, so we don't need to deal with this hard question. That's an outcome that could actually attract a unanimous opinion, even, because it's a, it means they get to dodge the bullet of doing something really hard. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not a criticism. I mean, some people would argue that's what they should do. You know, they should decide what absolutely needs to be decided, and that issue is hard, maybe leave it for another case where the correct result seems clearer. I guess we'll see. Yeah, it would be really interesting if they just kind of punted the issue and left it for another day. Um, before we break, are there any things that you haven't yet said that you'd like to say? Any kind of closing thoughts, impressions, items no, for I discussion? Think, I think we've covered it all. Yeah, no, I, think, I think that sets us up nicely to come back and talk about this after our own argument all right well thank you so much for being on the pod it was great to hear about your impressions on the case and the topic overall and to hear about your expertise in the area so thank you very much for coming yeah on. really enjoyed this and now i feel um a little i was very proud of the memo that i wrote this summer about how i think the case would come out but now hearing from a, a former silicon valley and member in some sort uh i feel a little less confident about the way i ruled so i'm not even going to share how it came out we'll <laughs> wait till our arguments and, and we'll have you back to discuss it more <laughs> all right i'm looking forward to it thanks guys thank you that's all from us here at the podvocate thanks again for joining us today our team wants to hear from you if there's a topic you want the show to cover an event you'd like us to address or just something you're passionate about please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com and visit our website at www.thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. 
Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jassend, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.